If you will turn with me to Numbers chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. I was thinking this morning, what is it that stirs my heart and what do I want to try to communicate to you as I speak to you each time? And I reflect upon my life's journey. Now, I'm not going to unpack that because it's really not that interesting. But what I will say is that I have seen in my life a, a desire to be an encouragement, an equipper, an exhorter. And so there is at least some of that that you will hopefully will come across as we talk this morning. Because when I look at people, I want to see you grow. And I don't always have good metrics by which to measure that and evaluate that. It's not my job to go around and score every individual in this church. But I will say that is my heart's desire, is to see you grow. Not just in knowledge, but in the depth of your walk with God. Because I don't know each of you, and I don't know what baggage you carry, what struggles you have. But I know you have them. And I know there are things that keep us from growing in the process. We get blinded to the world and we get, we're really stubborn sometimes, aren't we? Let me read our passage here before I get going into the thoughts I want to unpack for us. Starting with verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into the, this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them and spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy amongst them. Moses is an interesting character, is he not? We seem to know quite a bit about Moses and his place in history and how God used him is quite profound. As believers, we, he holds a prominent place in our thinking. And his relationship, his presence is some of the most impressive and profound miracles that God has performed throughout the history of humanity. They're tied together and so we're mindful of him in this journey. We even see Moses as, as he communicated with God as if being face to face. There is a sense in which we see the, the, the power of God flowing through Moses as he spoke. If you'll think about him 
standing before Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court with all of Pharaoh's pagan followers with him. And he declared to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And so there are profound moments in which we see Moses, but in this case, it seems that he has taken his eyes off of God. He is responding in emotion and not in faith. He has become distracted. I would say in many respects, he's found himself in a place he doesn't want to be around people he's not really fond of. And I say sometimes we can find ourselves in a similar place. Sometimes God places us in situations in life that we would prefer not to be in. Sometimes God places people around us that we don't always enjoy, appreciate, or understand. And yet, they're there. And how often is it in this journey that we find ourselves asking questions when things are difficult? Why am I here? What have I done to deserve this? This is too difficult to bear. The burden is too great. If you don't do something, God, I'm not going to make it. And we find this sense of despair because we find ourselves caught in a circumstance that our flesh really doesn't like or enjoy or appreciate. And so I would exhort you to think and reflect upon the reality is that God is sovereign. And while there are things that we're choosing to do when we find ourselves in life circumstances because we are making choices and often we make bad choices, God ordains moments that surround our lives. And so what may feel heavy and burdensome to you, God is not using them just to simply make your life difficult, but he's using these moments to shape you. That's the pressure that we feel. We're often confused by the presence of evil in our lives. Why does evil surround us? Why do hardships surround us? Do I need to do something different? Am I good? I'm just making sure that wasn't me just blowing up or the Lord was doing something there. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll press on. How about that? There's a, a sense of the importance of really shifting our focus is to not be stressed by the circumstances of life that we find ourselves in, but to really recognize that God is ordaining these moments to shape us and to mold us. And I think every one of us in this room, even as I look across the faces, I think you could say amen to that and you recognize the value in that. Thank you. We survive moments like these not because we have found an intestinal fortitude, a strength to persevere and push through, but because there is a faith that we placed in God. And I think this is what makes Moses really intriguing here in this moment, is he has faced many difficult challenges. He has seen God move in circumstances that only God could accomplish. And yet in this one moment, he has chosen to really break faith with God. And that's so much of the accusation that we see God placing upon Moses here. And so as we journey through life, the importance that we, of making these decisions can often be just as simple as turning our eyes toward Jesus. And I'm reminded of the, the classic hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, written in 1918. Now, I thought about singing it, but since I have no capacity to carry any note, I will just read the words just by way of reminder. But there's such profound truths here from the refrain. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you think about the disciples that were on the boat with Jesus when the storm came up, 
And Jesus is awakened and he calms the storm. But he chastises the disciples for their lack of faith. And so this dynamic of faith in Christ as we journey through life is critically important to us. And so much of the anxiety that we feel, the ways we medicate our hearts and our minds are simply a self way to not have to really depend on God in faith fully. These are markers of where we're not being dependent upon Him fully. As we join the Israelite nation here, they are at the end of their 40 years of wandering into the wilderness. And if you remember, this was as a result of the spies who went into the promised land. And they said, yeah, it's good, but there are some really big people there. In fact, we look as grasshoppers there. Now, what are they saying? They're saying that in my strength, I cannot go in there and overtake those people. But God has been doing battle for them all along. In fact, I'm reminded when Moses stood at the edge of the Red Sea and the Israelites were pinned up against the sea by Pharaoh's army. Moses says, stand fast and watch the glory of the Lord. Watch his provision come. And what happens? The sea miraculously divides. I don't have to see a sea divide, but I want to live a life where I see God's glory manifested in many ways and many miracles are happening and there are circumstances that only God can bring about. That's the kind of life I want to lead. Is that the kind of life you want to lead? Yes. See, this journey through the wilderness was not simply a punitive response by God, but it was a time to, for Israel to learn. It was for them to learn to see God rightly. They were in the midst of a pantheon of gods, pagan gods that surrounded their culture. They come from Egypt, which is full of it. And if we were to press deeper into numbers, we would see this happening again. They needed to understand the distinction as we do. They learn how to know God better so that they might have a deepening relationship with him and learning how to trust God more, to embrace who he is and how he's moving in our lives. And what we find in this journey through the wilderness, and I use that metaphorically for a moment, is God is stripping our flesh from the grip that it has on our lives. And that hurts because our flesh, <laughs> it wants to do everything it can to preserve itself. And our flesh recognizes that in the words of the great theologian Joel Olstein, this is their, its best life now. But you understand what I'm saying is this flesh, this is as good as it gets for our flesh. But as a redeemed, born-again individual with the Spirit of God indwelling me, I'm looking forward to the new body and a new opportunity to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. But the flesh is going to clamor, and this sanctification process is really about stripping away the dependence we as individuals have upon our flesh. This is just simply part of the sanctification process. So it continues to cause me puzzlement when I think about Moses and what he's doing here. And when I think about all that he had seen and experienced over the course of his life, he saw God's glory leaping from the burning bush. He saw God declare his authority over the pagan rulers of the world and the plagues. He saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And it stayed the hand of the angel of death. He saw God's hand of provision as they departed from Egypt. And provision was given by water and manna. 
just on a side note, this struck me this week, manna. It apparently is translated, what is it? Here's God has created a food for them to eat, and they don't look at it and recognize it. There is a divine presence. It's from heaven. It just struck me. I just thought that was intriguing that God has given provision, and we just simply have to trust that it is his provision. And we might want to know, where did it come from? What's its makeup? What's its content? Is it high in sodium? Is it bad for me? We know it was not. We see God, or Moses saw God's might and authority over nature in the dividing of the Red Seas and his holiness as the fire sat upon Sinai. And yet he still chose to break faith with God and strike the rock. And so we're reminded as we press, begin to press into the text that even if it's all that we see and all we experience, we still find ourselves struggling to make decisions that are God-honoring. Do we bask in His holiness or do we walk in our own strength? Numbers, is uh, the title is taken from the Greek word arithmoi, which is where we get our word arithmetic from. It is the title given uh, from the census returns that are contained within it. Uh, we see in chapters 1 through 4 and chapters 26, where we see the census are given. But the Hebrew title for this book is Bim Edar, which means in the wilderness. And I think this is probably really more of an appropriate title for what is being described here. Numbers is the fourth of five books written by Moses. It is, uh, you may think of it as the Pentateuch, the five volumes, or the law. And so it's this fourth book that sits here in all of that Moses has written. Due to the nature of the book, it is believed that it was written in the, at the end of his life. And certainly the timing of this book would certainly indicate that circumstance. As we look at the Exodus number narrative, as we look at those two books as a, as a historic framework, there are three travel narratives that are interesting to just consider as far as a framework for us for this morning. First, Exodus 13 through 19 covers the Red Sea to Sinai. The second travel narrative is Numbers 11 through and 12, which covers Sinai to Kadesh. And finally, which is where we find ourselves today, Numbers 20 and 21, is the, covers Kadesh to Transjordan. And so you just see in the simple diagram here, we basically see the flight from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, which is today's Gulf of Aqaba, and the wilderness wandering, and then they will eventually make their way up to the edge of Jordan, the Jordan River, and eventually will begin to inhabit and move into the promised land. And so they will spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Uh, and basically that generation that said, we cannot overtake the land, did not enter the promised land. It was an entirely new generation. If you'll notice the jump here, we don't really have much time are much addressed in a large amount of time in numbers. As we go, basically this 37 to 40 years is really lightly addressed, and it's very quiet. The text is very quiet during this time period for us. And so as we move into chapter 20 here, verse 1, we see that we've got a really a basic introduction of what's to come, not only in this chapter, but the chapters that will follow it. We have a wandering people, and they're about at the end of their wandering time. A people with a land, a promised land, but they are not occupying that promised land. They have yet to inhabit that which is in front of them. While they were given an opportunity 40 years earlier, God has caused them to wander in the wilderness and is not allowing them to enter into the promised land until that time has been completed. They are a fearful people. They were fearful then and in many respects still fearful now. 
And I think, if I could just digress for a moment, as I look upon people in general, we are fearful people. We want to control situations in life, and yet we're afraid of what's, what's going to happen. We're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of the known sometimes. As we look forward into life and see the possibilities, we don't know what's going to happen. And we find ourselves moving into a sense of self-preservation. We want to control circumstances and outcome. And God has not really given us that. It's part of the exhortation to live one day at a time. Is that, is, that is developing that mindset where we begin to recognize that life is not lived but one moment at a time, one day at a time. And that while we might make plans for what's in front of us, while we might make plans for what's in front of us, it's still beyond our scope and our work and our ability to really deal with. As we move into verses 2 through 5, we see the description here of the problem of water and the lack thereof and the dynamic of how they engage with one another. Am I good? There we go. When I think about the problem of water, I would think it would be an ongoing situation. And yet Scripture only records here in this, this segment of time two situations. And so I'm left to assume that the dealing with water was a problem they were able to manage within their own strength uh, or find springs in the meantime, but they got themselves into a vulnerable place at this moment. They have a physical need. Now, if there is a cyclical nature to this text, or if it sounds familiar, Exodus 17, 1-4 offers a similar circumstance at another time. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? Behold, I will stand before you there on a rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Now some have proposed that this account in Exodus and the one we're reading today in Numbers is the same situation. Basically, the, the idea is that the, the, the framing of the word, the concerns that are expressed are very similar. But really, what we see is distinctly different is the means by which God instructs Moses to produce water for the people. In the first situation, the Exodus account, what we see is God instructs Moses to strike the rock. And what we're looking at today, God instructs Moses to speak to the rock. And so we see a very different situation that is occurring here. Now, what we recognize, and we'll certainly unpack this a little bit more, is we see also Moses' rebellion in the situation. Not only is Moses given different instructions, but his response is different. And we'll talk about what that might be. Now, as we see here, the assembly is gathered says here, they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. This is a, a military-sounding phrasing because typically it would be Moses and Aaron that would call the assembly to them. And in this situation, the assembly is, call, is gathering themselves against Moses and Aaron. And so what we see here is, and I think about this logistically, it is estimated that Israel was 2 million plus people. Now, I was at the Promise Keepers event in Washington, D.C. in 1997, and there was an estimated 1 million people there. And so I'm thinking logistically, it is really not practical or possible that Moses would have been able to stand in one spot 
and speak in such a way that every single person would have heard him, discounting the possibility of a supernatural work. Is that what I'm thinking is likely what we're seeing here is that the heads of each tribe have come and they have come as representatives of the whole of the people. And so what is being described here is not so much in the particulars Moses is speaking to everyone, but that that he these people are speaking on behalf. And so there's a larger representation of what is being communicated here. When we see this military phrasing here, Judges 20.30 says, the sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against uh, Galbia at the, at, as at other times. First Chronicles 19.10 says, Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he elected from all the choice men of Israel, and they arrayed themselves against the Arminians. And so my point is, what we're seeing here with this assembly against Moses and Aaron is there's ill will here. They are that close from mutiny. They're about to take things into their own hands and respond. They will, in their minds, they're going to fix the problem one way or the other. Now, as we see them laying their complaints and their struggles and their concerns, I'm really struggling with the true motivation of what these people are communicating. See, I'm thinking, Moses is not withholding water from the people. He doesn't have some store of water, and they're now caught in a vulnerable place. Moses likely is not like, I know where water is, but I'm not taking those people to this place. He's not likely doing that. And yet the people were angry and hostile with him. There's, what we're beginning to see is there's heart issues within everybody here. And these people are not sensitive to what God might be leading to them. It seems that they have forgotten to whom they belong. They belong to God. They're in the wilderness for a particular purpose. They're journeying to a particular promised land. It seems as though they forgot the ultimate purpose for which they were delivered from Israel. They were delivered to be a chosen people through whom the Savior of the world would be born out of these people, as prophesied first to Abraham as we read in Genesis chapter 12. It seems as though they forgot why they were in the wilderness in the first place. They were in the wilderness in the first place because their ancestors sinned. And they forgot that. And so their complaints to me ring hollow why did God bring us out here to die? Why did he take us out of Egypt? I mean, there's this almost, when you read this, it's like, why have you made us come up, up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Was Egypt that good for them? Did I miss the, the story? Egypt wasn't that good for them. I mean, you can go back into Exodus and you can see what they struggled with. And yet, their extreme and their response, I like to use the word myopic, self-focused. They only saw what they needed in the very moment and they were only seeing themselves and failing to see the larger concept, the larger idea, the larger plan, who they belong to. Now, their struggle was, we have no water. That's a legitimate complaint. I find that to be valid. But their complaining really was manipulative in many respects. What I see these people are struggling with is they would rather be slave to a man and control their own destiny than a slave of God and trust independence of him. I pose that to a question to you. Because we're slave to something, church. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to Christ. Now, being born again, we're a slave to Christ. But do we live like we're slaves to men? How many of us look at what we hear in the news and, and the culture and the society and we worry about the, the things that spin around outside? We're distracted. 
we fail to really walk in that which we've been truly given. I think what God is working to accomplish here is really he wants to provide and meet needs. He wants to meet your needs. But he also is looking to shape you and to mold you. He really is. And that means bringing you to situations that you're not going to enjoy. See, this situation with the water, the water is really secondary to what's going on here. Oh, it was a legitimate need and God was always going to meet it. We even see that in here in the next few verses. But it's really not about that. And I, I offer that to you. You may not like what's going on. You may say, God, fix this, change this. And really, and some of those, many of those cases are valid and legitimate concerns we have. But really, it's not just about that. And really, it's not even always chiefly about that. Are you truly willing to be dependent upon God for all of your needs? Now, that's an easy question to ask. And many of us would sit here and say this morning, yes. But I find that in light of the shift of culture over the past couple of years, that's no longer an arbitrary question where we just ask in a hypothetical sense. What if, I'll use the term, a government agency walks in the door and arrests several of us for publicly declaring the greatness of God and we go to jail and shut our church down. That's no longer kind of this arbitrary that's going to happen in the future and we don't really think that's going to happen in our lifetime. We are aware that is happening in some respects within this world. And so we begin to ask, we have to ask ourselves, in light of that, am I still willing to be dependent upon God? When I think about these people, if they were thinking truly where they recognized who they were and had a pure motive behind things, what would be a, a better response than, why have you brought us out here to die? What would be the right, if you will, biblical or theological response? And I, I was thinking, well, first of all, my response is much of what I hear in this context, and for that I'm thankful. I don't say that to applaud you, but just to simply say I am thankful that I hear these declarations, but God, you are the provider of all of my needs. In accordance with your will, sustain me for your glory, and when my time comes to go home, I am ready to meet you. I trust that's the cry of our heart. Sometimes you get up here and you speak and an emotion show up that I didn't really know were there. You know? We look at verse 6 here and we see Moses. Says, then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. They were hurt. They were overwhelmed. When I think about this, leadership itself carries a great weight and a great price. And anyone and maybe all of us who carry some sense of leadership in the various areas of life that we find ourselves are aware of that. Leadership carries a great weight. We often feel the sting of criticism when we have given our best, when those whom we are leading, we want the best for. When there is criticism that comes back to us, we feel that because for, if you will, a godly leader, there's a sense in which we long for the best for those who would follow us, in whatever the context may be. 
Sometimes things happen that are our fault. Sometimes tough times happen because it's those people that are following us's fault. Sometimes it's just the circumstances of life. And I know as a father, I would, and probably have tried many times, take painful situations away from my children or grandchildren. And yet, what I've learned as I've gotten older is sometimes those circumstances are really, as we've already been talking, God-ordained moments which he can use to shape our children and our families. And so sometimes taking something from somebody because I feel the pain of it is wrong. But I still feel the weight of it. And I'm mindful of that. See, a good leader with respect to criticism is, a, is one who's going to first consider the source of the criticism. He's going to be mindful of where's this criticism coming from. He's also going to be able to filter what the criticism's nature is. Is there value in what's being brought to us? Sometimes as leaders, we need a sense of criticism and we need to hear it for what's true. But how do we filter? We have to be able to filter out the true criticism, the valuable criticism versus just aimless rhetoric. And then rightly respond to that criticism, to the truthful criticism. Make adjustments. Be sensitive along the way. As we move into verses 7 and 8, we see the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation. And speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. And so what God has given is a means by which the provision of water is going to be given. That Moses is to take the staff. Now this is a staff that by all indications, from what I understand, this is a staff he has likely had over 40 years. This should be the staff that turned into a serpent and consumed the serpent in Pharaoh's court. This is that staff. And he's had it for a long time. And he says, take the staff in front of the people and speak to the rock and water will come forth. Don't hit the rock. And this staff, with it being a symbol of power, is important. As Moses stands in front of the people, what they're going to recognize, they're likely to some degree, particularly the leadership He's going to recognize that staff. And when Moses stands with that staff, he's saying, I have met with God and I am here in front of you as an authority over what is about to happen. I'm not speaking on my behalf, but I'm, the staff should be a reminder of what God has done and what he's about to do. The means by which God chooses this water from a rock is intriguing. He doesn't have Moses strike it. He has Moses speak to it. Now the text doesn't, doesn't really delve into what Moses should have said, but it gets me thinking, what's different here? What is it that God wants Moses and the people to see in this encounter? And the only thing I can really come up with, or the most prevalent thing I should say, is there's power in the Word. You know what? There's power in the Word. And when we think about the Word, I think about Jesus Christ, the Logos. We see in Genesis 1, and God said, this is Jesus speaking. I like to refer to it that when we, when we hear God's voice, it's Jesus' lips that are moving. And so I think there's at least a sense that we may be seeing a foreshadowing of Christ here. Which makes Moses response here all the more sinful that he's not responding rightly because God is wanting people the people of Israel to see something unique as we move into verses 9 through 13 we see God we see Moses response to what's going on here and he says to them in verse 10 listen now you rebels I, I say this somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek and jokingly 
if I stood up here this morning and called you rebels or some other uh, unpleasant name, would you, like I see y'all already responding and perking up now. If I called you a derogatory name, would you continue to listen to me? Would there be value in what I'm about to say? You're like, I don't know what his problem is. And so what we're beginning to see here with this description is there's a heart issue for Moses right now. He's struggling with something. And so he stands in front of him and says, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of the rock, this, out of this rock? It's kind of like, should I even do this or not? Do you even deserve it? I don't really like you. And I don't want to do anything good for you. Of course, he's not acting in, 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 in conjunction with God's will and provision. Nor is he acting in conjunction with his leadership role. Moses is not just another guy either. He stands as the go-between between God and Israel. What he says and what he does carries great weight. Moses responds by taking the first actions and taking the staff and gathering the people. So far, so good. His tone reflects the struggles that he's seeing. Now, is there a sense in which Moses could be justified to some degree with his frustration with the people? There's probably an argument you could make there. And I certainly see the value in that. But it's not so much that Moses was frustrated with the people's attack, but really the nature of how Moses ultimately responds in anger. Now, church, we have to be careful of our emotions we are emotional people who live in a culture that jabs our emotions and pricks our heart frequently. And we're stirred by that. And so we have to be mindful of that. We sometimes think we can, be to, we can display justified levels of anger and frustration with people. A sense of hostility and hatred. And that tone can come through. I have to be mindful of that in, within me. We have to be mindful of that as we engage with people. It is easy to simply say, you're lost, you're dumb, I don't have time to fool with you. But that is really not in conjunction with what God's will is for us to engage with the lost world. We should not... We should not be so foolish to think that a lost world is going to think like we as believers are. There's a dynamic that's different there. and We must be mindful of that. As we see here, Moses strikes the rock in anger. Water still flows. And, I, and I'm so appreciative that in God's mercy, he made provision for their physical needs in spite of Moses's sinful acts, the nature of his heart. And it causes me to ask and think, what was Moses thinking here? Was he confused by God's instructions? Was Moses simply following a previously held pattern of striking the rock? Was he following a pattern where he simply says, I live in a world in which using my staff to strike things happens? Now, I don't mean that flippantly at all. Because if you think about what the staff has been for him from the beginning, he threw it down in front of Pharaoh and it turned into a serpent. He instructed Aaron to touch the water and it turned in the Nile River and it turned to blood. So it's not that there has not been a useful demonstration of the staff itself. Was Moses upset with God and or the people and simply decided, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do it a different way. How well are you at listening to God when you're angry? When you're angry with people? When you're angry with Him? I would make the case that 
what we're trying, what, what I'm hopefully trying to communicate to us today is that the circumstances and people that God brings into our life are meant to do many things to shape us and to mold us. If we have a situation or a person who comes into our life that we don't like and even find a form of hostility against, are we not really frustrated and angry with God? Because if He ordains these situations for us to be engaged with, then why show hostility to the people and why show hostility to God? Simply recognizing that God sovereignly is moving these things around our life and enjoying and embracing the moments as they come, I believe is a healthier, right, and just way to live life. We don't think that way very easily. But what we see is Moses' heart was not right. Now, did he commit murder? He did not. But Jesus does something for us that I think is important for us to capture here. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And that's not the Supreme Court here in this land. That is God himself. Now Moses was very well acquainted with the Ten Commandments. He would have been very, I mean, certainly he was. He was there to see God carve the first one and he had to carve the second set. If anybody knew the Ten Commandments, it would be Moses. He was well aware of the commandment to not commit murder. But what has Jesus done for here, for us here? If we hate our brother, we have done what already? We have committed murder already. So there's really much to consider here is there is something really sinful and we need to be mindful of this within our own walk ourselves. God judges Moses, verse 12, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given thee. We see this also restated at the very end of Moses' life in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. We read, go up into Abarim range to Mount Nebo and Moab across from Jericho and view Canaan. The land I'm giving the Israelites is their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin, because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. And so what we see here are two passages that are really describing the same response that God has towards Moses' sin. In Numbers, Moses did not believe God. In Deuteronomy, it says that Moses broke faith with God. To break faith is to act unfaithfully, treacherously, to transgress or to commit a trespass. In Numbers, we read that Moses did not treat God as holy. In Deuteronomy, it says, you did not uphold my holiness amongst the Israelites. Let's look at faith for just a moment. We see faith. As Hebrews, I think, 11.1 1 describes it well. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There is a confidence that what God has declared will happen, will happen. The strength of belief that which has not yet occurred will happen. It's, it's, it's rooted in a, in a foundational thinking 
a knowledge, but it extends beyond that. As I think about how we might understand faith, R.C. Sproul broke faith down into three levels. There's the notitia, the content of the faith. What is the things that make up our faith? Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? What is the gospel? Those component elements that are critical for us. The ascensus is the mental ascent to those realities, those truth claims. We can have them as an arbitrary truth claim, but when we begin to believe that they are truth claims, we begin to embrace that which we have seen and heard and understood. But neither of those are saving faith. For the world is full of people who believe the Bible is true. And what do we know about Satan? He believes God. He believes in God. He understands that, but he's not made God Lord of his life, nor he will he ever. And finally is the, what's called fiducia. And that's the, the ascent, that's the saving faith. That is the embrace of who Christ is. That is the regeneration of who we are. It is being born again. It is embracing Christ as Lord of my life. And there's an important distinction that sits in there, and I think we need to be sure we're understanding it. You might know the Bible better than anybody else in this room and still not be saved. Because what, what we need to understand is that these fundamental truths and our belief in them should translate into a saving faith in which we embrace them, walk in them, they transform. They, they transform who we are and how we think. Uh, here in Hebrews 11, we read, and I think this is really what we are seeing here with Moses. Verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Even if just for a moment this is what I see, is Moses has failed to acknowledge who God is in this moment. And what we do is when our faith fails, our wisdom begins to shift to us. We begin to be the best counsel for ourselves. And we struggle and we see the world is doing that very thing because they don't have faith in God. They're left to their own wisdom and their own devices. Using, using our wisdom is merely done out of a sense of pride. And so when you see yourself trying to figure out how you should live life and how your life should look and not liking what God is doing around you, what you're doing is you're saying, I know better. And you're seeing your pride begin to grow. And that can lead to such devastating results. There's so much of a battle for us as individuals as I was thinking about what to do with faith really this morning and how much to talk about it. Because I know we don't always live life where every moment we're just simply saying, God, I'm fully trusting in you. And every decision I make, every thought I think is in that vein. We're distracted by so much of what life is. I guess as a, as a marker, as a, an indicator of where we are, and think about how important it is that faith is evident, that we see the fruits of faith evidenced in how we live life, the words we say and the thoughts we think. James 2.20 says, Faith without works is useless. It's not that works brings about salvation, but with salvation, regeneration, who we are as being born again individuals ought to produce something that is tangible and seen for the world to, to take in. And so if you don't see that, there is at least reason to question what is going on in your heart. Verse 24 of that same chapter says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We see this understanding that, again, by faith, we are embracing who we are and we embrace who Christ is. 
but there ought to be fruit that comes from this. Now, I enjoy the benefit of seeing the fruit from this body, but it certainly is a question that we ought to be asking of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. And I'm left to conclude that really what we see with Moses here is that he was not walking by faith. He was walking by sight. He was walking by his own personal wisdom. He was demonstrating a sense of pride. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And this is really the heartbeat of what I would have loved Moses to have responded with here. Lord, whatever it is you place in front of me, I will walk in it. Now, we need to exhort one another to that end. You know what? That's not easy. We just don't show up and just do that. We need to encourage and equip one another to this end. I was thinking here about just the value, and I've even been processing this recently. Are you aware at how unique you are as a believer with respect to the world? Being born again, you have access to a knowledge and an insight that a lost individual does not have. You have a hunger for truth. You have a hunger for justice and mercy. In fact, you can see in the culture that they don't have it by the very fact that they're turning the very things we trust and long for and turning them upside down and rejecting the very things that we would embrace. That should be expected. But the Lord has left the church, us here, to continue to maintain and hold that. That's part of the journey that's in front of us. I'm reminded by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, he says, and this is his exhortation to the church in his heart's desire, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have the capacity to comprehend. We have the confidence that what we are comprehending is true. And we have the joy of walking in that because of who Christ is. And so what we see is the full range of notitia and ascensus and fiducia really all encapsulated in this one verse. Now Paul does warn the church there in Colossians 2.8 to not be taken, uh, be mindful of being taken captive by philosophies and empty deceit. He's aware that there are voices that are going to distract. And this is part of what I see with Moses here is that he was distracted by the voices and he responded in anger and frustration. Guard your heart against that church. It's critical. Now, as we think about here in the final point and what we see with respect to what God is doing in his judgment against Moses, Moses did not esteem God's holiness. Now, Moses' responsibility was to stand in front of the people and as much as anything, to do that very thing. Now, holiness, I, as I begin to look at this, I recognized really how much I've not pressed into this idea and really how much it is a, an idea that really has an element of mystery to it. Because God's holiness is encapsulating his perfections. But it's not just an attribute he possesses, but is a way he exists. We as believers, we, we should expect that because we have a relationship with Christ and God is holy, he is not going to leave us where we are. He is going to seek to sanctify and purify. It is, it is a must. It is a, it's going to happen. 
Because God is holy, he's going to seek to bring us and remove that which is unholy within us. And so if you, if you think we've just, at salvation, checked the box, I'm good, that's just the beginning of your journey as a believer. God will purify the church. It is happening. And I think much of what we see in society and culture today is not so much because it's just noise, but it's part of how God is using those circumstances to purify you and me, the church. See, Moses' responsibility was to stand in front of Israel and say, God is holy. He's unique. He's set apart. He's different from what all you think you see and hear around you. God is different. And he should be held in that high esteem. Moses should have been able to stand in front of the nation of Israel and say, we will trust God no matter where he takes us. And ultimately, he did not. God says, you took for yourself what was meant for me and me alone. And he was judged for that. And so as I think about how to deal with that as individuals and how do we continue to go forward in life in the light of this, one is I've, I've been using the word cultivate. Cultivate a life in the word. Cultivate a life of prayer. I realize this. If you're just starting, this is overwhelming. It's always going to be overwhelming. Okay? Start. Stay with it. Stay in it. Understand this. Let the Holy Spirit guide you, teach you, lead you through this. This is the Word of God. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Be mindful of the days that are in front of you. Don't waste them. Use them. Invest into the Word. I would also say submit your thoughts and actions to the Lord. And that's really a lot of the flesh that needs to be submitted into that. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think finally, and this was so much of what stirred my heart really in the beginning, is wait upon the Lord. You know, Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I could spend another 15 minutes, which I'm not going to, just reflecting personally about how I have not done that. It is hard to wait on the Lord. But what I have found in those moments that, I've, that I have wait, waited upon the Lord, I have seen blessings and provisions that have come into my life that I have, could not have created manufactured, or worked for on my own strength. I have seen things that I could not have comprehended. And that's simply by waiting upon the Lord. And in different ways, each one of you have got to understand what that looks like in your life. Where am I trying to press forward, make things happen, when I know the Lord has got a hand that He wants to put in my life and, to, and a unique blessing he wants to give me in these experiences. So thank you for allowing me to come and share some of what stirs my heart. I trust that words like these, a reminder of our relationship with Moses, who he is while he is a unique individual, I think there's much we can relate to about who he is. Father, thank you so much for loving us. 
for your continued investment, your faithfulness to us. May we be vessels that bring honor and glory to your name. May we esteem your holiness high amongst the nations. May your name be glorified, Father, and it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.